You know, this morning, we are uh, finishing up the series we started last week, a little two-week series on the topic of judgment, the judgments of God. And specifically, obviously, in a couple of weeks, there's only so much we can look at with respect to this big topic of, of judgment. Um, last week, we saw, we, we read from uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that said, it is appointed once for man to die, and after that, the judgment. You only go around once in life, and uh, then you die, and then you're judged. It's pretty black and white. Um, it doesn't even necessarily require that a person know Christ to be able to understand those words. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 17 says, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked. For a time for every matter and every deed is there. So that verse reminded us that there is a type of judgment coming. In fact, we're going to look at it today. We're going to talk about a judgment of the wicked, and we're going to talk about a judgment of the righteous. These two different major judgments um, that, are, that are yet ahead. Romans 3.19 says, all the world is accountable to God. The whole world. Acts 17.31 says, He has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is not only proof to people who believe on him that he was the Son of God and that he died for your sins and he offered eternal life and that he can actually give what he promises. It's also proof to the world that this one who's raised from the dead is actually going to be the judge. This week, we want to look at these two different judgments, though, the, these two big specific judgments of God. One is called the great white throne judgment. One is called the bema. Bema is a Greek word that just means judgment seat, place where Jesus sits to judge Christians. Um, but before we get to these judgments, it will help us to understand them a little better. I think especially this first one that we're going to look at, which is the great white throne, it'll, it'll help us understand this great white throne judgment for people who are outside of Christ if we understand a little bit of history that's going to come, lead up to the great white throne. Um, see if this makes sense to you. In, in the book of the Revelation, uh, Jesus' revelation to us through the Apostle John, in chapter 3 and verse 10, he says something that he doesn't elaborate on in the book of Revelation. He elaborates on it elsewhere in the Bible, but he just alludes to it. He just kind of hints at it in chapter 3 and verse 10, and this is what it says. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Jesus is referring to some specific event that's yet future that he describes specifically as a time of testing of the whole world. But interestingly, what he says to the church here is, I'm going to keep you from this. The word he uses, a little preposition he uses, actually even more than from, it's out of. I'm going to keep you out of this hour of testing where you will not have to go through this hour of testing. And this isn't proof positive of what's called the rapture. 
uh, but it is supportive of what's taught elsewhere. And so I would just say that before you get to the great white throne, it helps us to stop by saying, okay, what else is coming up ahead? Well, the Bible speaks of this rescuing of the church before the wrath of God falls on it. The next thing that the Bible speaks about uh, you'd see it if you looked in the book of Re the Revelation, uh, and especially looked at chapters 5 through 19. Chapters 5 through 19, and we've recently had a study of the book of Revelation up in the adult classes up here, and it's online. You can listen to it. Um, several of our Bible teachers went through that. It's available for anybody. But that discussion of what's called the tribulation is a time of testing that Jesus just talked about. It's a time when people are tested really with two things in mind. One is that people who have not believed on Christ because they see the judgments of God and they see the havoc that's being wrought on the face of the whole earth, God would like that and invites that to be an opportunity for people to repent. It becomes an opportunity for people to say, no, what my brother-in-law told me was true. What my grandfather said was true. Look at what's happening. Just as God said. And those people have an opportunity because of the recognition that they've gone their own way. They actually have the opportunity to turn to the God who in his grace sent his son to die for them too. So the first purpose of the testing is as an invitation to people to realize there is a God who saves but it is also a period of very intentional judging on the earth. Uh, a judging where people who harden their hearts against God will experience the temporal wrath of God. The, the, some of the most amazing pictures of wrath that could ever be poured out on humankind. So that's the next event that we find in, in history yet future right now. The next one in, is found in Revelation chapter 16 through 19. And that's what's known as the Battle of Armageddon, uh, or known in Ezekiel as the Battle of Gog and Magog. The, uh, that battle that we've all heard of, a lot of people tend to think of that as the end of the world. It's not actually the end of the world, but it is a time when God finally judges all those who have been in rebellion, and there is a massive battle that the Bible describes as taking place outside of a little community um, called Megiddo that you could go to today in Israel and there is a large plain, a large flat spot right there and, and in the book of Zechariah it actually says it describes how the blood will run, how deep it will run and for how far and you can actually stretch from that place all the way to the nation of Jordan if you were to follow the description of how much blood will be there. A remarkable, remarkable stretch of land where this judgment will be so severe. And that will be the, uh, the Battle of Armageddon. But it's interesting, that's not the last event. Uh, it is the last event of the tribulation, thankfully. It does, God, God does bring an end to this time of tribulation. But then we read in the Bible, if we were to turn there, uh, we read of uh, chapter 20, where we read of a thousand-year reign of Christ. I'll just read a couple of verses. We won't spend any time on it, but we'll just look at these historical events. It says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is verse one. Having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, 
who is the devil and Satan. He identifies him as clearly as you can, all four names that we know of, dragon, serpent, devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And do you know, six times in this passage, it mentions a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, uh, spoken of as a time when Jesus will actually reign on the earth with his saints. Um, in our church, we happen the, the leaders of this church happen to believe this is literally true, that this rapture really will happen. There will be a, an escape of people whom God will take up, Christ will take up. There will be a real tribulation, a time of horror on the earth, that there will be a real battle, a, a, a literal battle where people will be fighting against Jesus himself, and that, that he will win that battle and that there will be a uh, that there will be a period of a, of a reign of Christ on the earth. Not all Christians believe these things. Many men and women who know the scriptures far better than I do don't believe that, that the scriptures are teaching those things. I, I will find out. I think they're wrong. I think that, and our understanding is that the most plain and literal understanding of what these things says will be supported in time. But what we know is that before we get to that big major event that we're talking about called the great white throne judgment, there's one more thing that happens. One more thing that happens. We can't say it's worldwide because, frankly, it doesn't happen in the world. It doesn't happen on the earth. Um, it, it affects the world in the sense that people from every single tribe and every tongue and every nation will be there. People who have been covered by the blood of Christ through their faith in Christ will be there. If you're a Christian today, you'll be in this place that we're talking about. And, and this is one of the last things that the Scripture speaks about before it talks about the great white throne. And, and it's found, I'll just look at it for one second, in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This is an event yet future. It doesn't play, take place on the earth, but this marriage feast of the Lamb, that is where believers in Christ are united with him in a feast that will be a remarkable time of celebration such as we've never seen. And I don't know, I have a very good friend from Ecuador who swears that, you know, we all know we're going to understand each other in heaven. And uh, he says that... Uh, Español es la lengua del cielo, that Spanish is the language of heaven. And so he assures us that whatever other languages we may have, we will all speak and understand Spanish in heaven. Um, ojalá que sí. I, I hope so, because then I won't need to practice it anymore. But, but this is a place where Christians of all tribes and tongues will be glorying in the fellowship with the Lamb. A wonderful time to look forward to. I can't wait. When I think of the fellowship that we have enjoyed, this church has enjoyed with people from nations all over this world, and how sweet fellowship is united right away when you know someone else in Christ, I can't imagine what the marriage feast is going to be like. But that's not what we're here to talk about. So turn to chapter 20 of the book of the Revelation and verse 11, and I want us to see 
I want us to see this first of the two major judgments that we're looking at today. Remember last time we looked at the general idea of God's judgments, and today we're looking at two specific judgments. Notice this judgment that takes place after all these other things we've talked about. This particular judgment takes place after all of this other pre-recorded history. And in, interestingly, this is the last time God deals with sin. This is the last time sin is dealt with by God. It's, it's really like um, it's a punt. This is God doing away with anything that has to do with sin, including judgment. There's no more judgment after this part of the Bible. You may remember that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are both talking about the world before any sin. It was all the way God intended it. It was all good. And you may know also that the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, are also all good. In fact, it starts by saying that he makes a new heaven and a new earth in chapter 21. Much like he made the first heaven and earth, but this is a heaven and earth that have that have fallen, if you will. They've been marred by sin. And, and, and we're told in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 that there is coming a time where with extreme heat the elements will burn up and earth and heaven will be done away with. Now, I don't know, but it somehow happens right before chapter 21 in the book of the Revelation. So there's yet coming a time where the earth is burned up and where the heavens are burned up. And that's why there's a need for a new heaven, a new earth. But notice the last thing he does, just like Genesis chapter 3 starts with, you leave a, you leave a perfect world in Genesis chapter 2 where they are naked and unashamed and the two are becoming one. The picture of unity, the picture of joy, the picture of enjoying the garden, the picture of walking in the garden with the Lord, the picture of his glory, the picture of filling the earth and subduing it, all good. Literally anything you've ever heard that's bad has never been noticed by verse 25. And then from chapter 21 and verse 5, it's the same way. After all the tears are wiped away, because that doesn't happen until then, there will still be tears up through chapter 20 and even up to chapter 21, uh, chapter 21 and the first few verses. But there is coming a time tears will all be wiped away. But do you notice the very last thing God does before he brings a new heaven and a new earth, is that he finally does away with sin because this is a judgment of people without Christ. Look at what it says. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. I believe the him is Jesus. Uh, John's gospel says that the father judges no one, but he has commanded all judgment into the hand of the son. Uh, and that passage back in Acts chapter 27 that we mentioned earlier says that that, he is, that God is going to judge the world through the one who was raised from the dead. So I believe we're talking about Jesus sitting on this great white throne. And it says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. This possible, we don't know, but this may be alluding to the idea of the earth and the heavens being done away with at this very point. This may be the point at which they're done away with. I, I don't know. But but I find it interesting and important for us who are Christians to remember because sometimes our view of Jesus, I have said before, I think sometimes we have an, what I want to call an overly mild view of Jesus. Heaven and earth are fleeing from Jesus. 
because of this judgment. Everybody coming to this judgment wants to flee, but what it says is there's no place found for them. There's nowhere else for them to go. There are no trees to run to. There are no mountains to run to. See, people today, right now, who are outside of Christ will flee. They don't want to hear what the Bible actually says about God or about his judgments. And so they'll just say, I don't want to hear that stuff or I'll ignore it or whatever because they can do that. God in his grace lets people have the freedom to say, I'm not listening, blah, 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 blah. They can do that right now, but there's coming a time they can't do it. They'll find no place to flee. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, meaning the important, like kings, and the totally unimportant. The person who works at the back of the restaurant, nobody notices. Standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there are books, and then there's a book. The one book is the book of life. So that's one book. But then there are other books. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So... The books, not talking about the book of life, but the other books, these are a recording of deeds of these people. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. He wants to make sure we get that. He says it twice. They were judged according to their deeds. But he's also made it plain there's another book called the book of life there. But that's not the book of deeds. The book of life is the book in which everyone whose sins have already been paid for, it's taken care of. Everyone who has believed on the Lord Jesus, everyone who has recognized that I am deserving of the judgment of God because I have sinned, but he offered eternal life in the person of his son who who took all of my sins, who bled and died, and who extended himself and says, even to my enemies... I love you. I take your sin on me so that you don't have to. He gives that opportunity. And everyone who has believed on that, their names are written in the book of life. And that book of life is open here. But do you know that the people who go to this judgment, the people who go to the great white throne, their names aren't written there? How do I know that? Well, there are a number of ways. One of the ways is the fact that they're described as the dead. Three times over, it's the dead, the dead, the dead. You realize that in the Bible, people who have believed on Christ are not referred to as the dead. They're referred to as born again, and they're to never die again. Jesus said this. He was at a funeral in John chapter 11. He's talking to a friend. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And then almost as if he was correcting himself, and instead it was really just an elaboration on what he just said, whoever believes on me will never die. Jesus is saying that the person who believes on Christ never experiences death. They taste death. We all taste death daily. Your back hurts. You've got organs that are reciting themselves to you. You're experiencing tastes of death. That's not what we're talking about. The real death, the real separation. We don't go through that. 
So Jesus says in John 5, 24, whoever hears him and believes on him who sent me has passed from death into life and will not come into judgment. And this is the judgment he's speaking about with the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross asked Jesus the question, Master, would you remember me in the day when you come to your kingdom? Jesus says, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because the thief is going to die on that cross. But as soon as his body dies, he'll be present with the Lord. Uh, First, Second Corinthians 5, a, verse we'll, a passage we'll look at in a minute when we look at the Bema, the, the judgment seat of Christ on Christians. Paul makes the statement that if you are present in your body, you are absent from the Lord. He says, but if you're present with the Lord, you're absent from your body. And, and, and he even says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, as soon as you leave this life, if you're a Christian... You are immediately present with the Lord Jesus. See, you're living. You've been at the marriage feast of the Lamb. You're already beginning to experience the life he has set you apart for. This judgment is not for you, but for those who are there. This is what the scripture says. Every one of them will be judged according to their deeds, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a sobering passage because what it's saying is that the people, the people who are outside of Jesus, who are outside of having me, having receive the only means by which sins are forgiven, have a certain judgment coming at the great white throne, and it's one part of it is already predetermined, and that is where they'll end up. The part that is not predetermined is the very interesting statement that he makes twice, and they were judged according to their deeds. And people ask the question, well, if they're going to hell, why judge them according to their deeds? If they're going to hell because their names are not written in the book of life, which is what it says, anyone whose name is not written in the book of life goes into the lake of fire, why would their deeds be judged? Well, here's the thing. God really means what he says. He says he's going to bring every deed to light, every deed to judgment. We'll talk about that again when we get to the, the bema, the, the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. The point is God takes everything seriously. Jesus says in um, Matthew 10 and again in Matthew 11, he makes the comment that people will actually undergo a more severe judgment who have seen him in the flesh and heard him speak than will those who were part of Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, he's taking a story that's known by everybody about wickedness, and he says, take those people. Do you realize that those of you who have seen me and rejected me, you'll receive a greater judgment? And then in the next chapter, he says it again. He talks, he talks about uh, people who will receive a greater judgment. In one place, Jesus says that, do you realize that the queen of Sheba traveled all the way, probably Ethiopia, we believe, from Ethiopia to Israel just to hear about the glory of God as revealed through the kingdom of Solomon. And he says, 
I tell you, you have someone in your midst who's far greater than Solomon, and yet you're rejecting him. And she was willing to, she was willing to revere God, the God who blessed Solomon, and all she saw was Solomon, and you see someone far greater. I tell you, your judgment will be far greater than anyone in that day. God has a comparative judgment, and, and I don't know what that comparative judgment is. I don't know if there are hotter parts of the lake of fire. I don't know. All I know is God says he does it. And he does it because he's faithful. He does it because he's just. And it makes me think that we have got to continue to take seriously the privilege of telling other people about Christ. One particular atheist, half of the team of uh, Penn and Teller, um, Penn, uh, Gillette Penn, he says, I have no respect. He, he says, I'm an atheist. I've been an atheist since I was in my mid-20s. But I have no respect for Christians who don't tell other people what it is they believe. How much would you have to hate someone to not tell them that you believe you know a way they can have eternal life and that you believe that apart from that, they will be judged forever? He said, it's not that I believe it, but it makes me think, doggone, if I did, I would be a wicked person if I wouldn't tell others. And that from somebody from the other side reminds me how important it is for me to see the, the privilege and opportunity we have of telling other people. And I'm not, again, I said last week, I'm not talking about beating people up or trying to force them or press them. I'm talking about having relationships with people who don't know Christ and respecting them enough to listen to them, respecting them enough to have meals with them, respecting them enough to loan your tools to them, respecting them enough to care about them, to pray for them, to build a relationship with them and to pray and look for opportunity to share the truth. So that is the great white throne and we won't go there, but it, it is supported. This idea of a lake of fire, the idea of burning, the idea of eternal torment is repeated over and over in the Bible. Jesus refers to it himself Multiple, in fact, more times than all the other times in the Bible put together. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 says it's only right for God to judge those who have chosen not to obey the gospel. This truth that is shared, that those at the great white throne will be going to a Christless eternity and that their deeds will also be evaluated. I guess that means that Hitler will have a far, far more severe judgment than will that nice lady who lives next door to you who just doesn't think she needs Jesus. The results of the great white throne judgment, first, no one passes go. No one collects $200. The great white throne is not a place to judge whether people get to have life. That's already been determined before by whether they believed on Christ. Second, they're going to be consigned to hell, a very real hell. Unpopular, but real. And third, they're going to be judged according to their deeds. God's actually going to evaluate their deeds. The second judgment, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5 and just kind of camp out there for a moment. We'll look at a few verses in 2 Corinthians 5. And before we do... I want to read two brief passages to you. 
You, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll be there with you in a second. But before I read that, I want to kind of set it up. I want to set it up with a couple of other brief passages. And now we're switching from the great white throne judgment to the, the bema, the, which just means judgment seat. This is the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. One verse I wanted to read to set it up is found in, uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it out loud to you. It's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, where in a book in which John is encouraging Christians to walk in fellowship with God, to, to continually deal with God as sin as they see it in their lives, as the Spirit makes that evident, to continue to grow in love, to continue to abide in the promises of God and the commands of God, as he's commanding this fellowship and this growth and this intimacy with God, he makes this warning halfway through the book. And now, little children, which is one of John's endearing terms for a Christian, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, little children, abide in him. Abide in him means more than we can get into here, but what it means is to walk with him. It means to let him be at home with you everywhere. Some of you have read that little booklet that's been around for the last 50 or 60 years, My Heart, Christ's Home. If you haven't, by all means, read it. It's the idea of how does Christ take up residence everywhere in me so that I might take up residence with him everywhere. My Heart, Christ's Home. And really what he's saying is abide in him Walk in him. Why? So that when he appears, which he will, we may have confidence. That suggests that there will be Christians who will not have confidence when they see the Lord. They'll see the Lord, and the first thing they'll do is they'll, just, they'll feel the opposite of confidence. It says, and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Why does it say that? Well, because Christians who do not abide in him will actually experience shrinking from Jesus in shame. I, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but I think it's going to be like all of a sudden we're brought before Jesus and we go, oh my God, and he says yes. And we say, I mean, I knew you were real. I knew you were holy. I mean, I knew all that. And he's going, yes. But I really, honestly, I kind of blew you off. Yes. I mean, I was so glad that you paid for my sins that, frankly, I just became more and more stubborn. I, I just didn't really change what I was doing at age 28. I was still doing at age 48. Yes. Oh, Lord. Lord, I'm so sorry. Yes, I am too. There will be a shrinking from him in shame at his coming because people did not know that his coming and his judgment were real. They heard the good news that they no longer have to appear before the ultimate judgment of the great white throne. That is, they passed out of that judgment, but they've neglected the teaching of the fact that he's, he is still looking at everything in our lives. And as a result, they find themselves shocked and dismayed and ashamed because at that moment, the word which was written on their hearts when they believed all comes back to them and they realize, look at all the truths I knew about how I should have treated my kids, about how I should have treated my wife, about how I should have treated people at work, about how I should have been with neighbors, about how forgiving I should have been, about what I should have done with alcohol, about what I should have done in these areas of deceit in my life. 
the person will be brought to such an awareness that I think it'll be just a remarkable time of shame. Do you know, that's why the tears have not yet been wiped away. That doesn't happen until Revelation 21, which is after the judgment seat of Christ. Tears don't get wiped away because there will be real tears in front of Jesus. At that moment, actually, our main thought will not be, oh, good, I get to go to heaven anyway. It is often that now. It will never be that then. One more passage I just wanted to read real briefly and then get into our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, is specifically addressing part of the Bema, but the part of the Bema that has to do, the, the, a part of the judgment seat of Christ on Christians that has to do with people who teach others. That is, people like Sunday school teachers and, and parents who teach their kids and pastors and all that. This will be a judgment seat of people who are teaching or the part of the judgment seat related to those who are teaching. But the principles in it, even for people who are not teaching, are still true. It says this, according to the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Another is building on it, but let each man be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's true for you and me, teacher or not. We all are building something on a foundation. And there's only one foundation, and it's Jesus, full of truth and full of grace. Completely holy, so he deals with sin. Completely gracious, so he's remarkably forgiving. Humble, oh my sakes. How could someone who's a son of God be humble? All we have to do is look at Philippians 2, 3 through 8, and we'll see remarkable humility. But this is what it says. Now, if a man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, again, referring specifically to how people teach, but with the implication for all of us in what we do. What you do with the way you treat your neighbor, what you do when you forgive your sister who mistreated you at a wedding, what you do with, with your kids, or what you do with people who have, been, who have messed with you at work, what you do in every situation, you will either build with it on gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, and straw. That is to say, you'll either do precious things with what has happened or you'll do worthless things. And this is what it says. If any man's work which he built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. That's good news, folks. Anything you've ever done because of your faith in Christ, a word you've spoken, a prayer you've uttered, a, a gift you've given, a place you've traveled, uh, anything you have done because of your faith in Christ is going to get rewarded. That's what it tells you. But it also says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. That is, not only will I experience shame, I'll experience loss. I believe that when we're before the judgment seat of Christ, if we continue to live in ways that we often have, and that we have not turned from as Christians, I believe what will happen is we will experience remarkable loss at the judgment seat. In other words, we will actually see what could have been. If only I had taken more seriously the warnings. If only I had gone to a, a buddy I knew who walked with the Lord and said, would you help me be a better disciple? If only I had been more open to what my husband said to me or my, my kids said to me. If only. I think that the loss will be very real. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. This is not talking about whether you're saved. It's not talking about whether you're going to heaven or hell. That's not the focus. The focus is something else. Turn, if you would to 2 Corinthians 5, where we'll finish. 
Because this is that judgment seat of Christ. In fact, it's even used, that word is used. That word is used, the, the, the word, the bema, verse 10, it'll, we'll see it. But look at what he says in verse 9. He has now been talking, the Apostle Paul has been talking in this chapter about coming to the end of your life. You come to the end of your life, and he says in one of the earlier verses, your tent is collapsing. He's referring to your body. Mine is certainly collapsing. I don't know about you. Some of you look like you've got pretty good tents. A few of you, I think you've lost several of the stakes. I don't know if you're going to find them again. But the tent is collapsing. It's a picture of the end of life. And he says this, verse 9, Therefore, in view of the fact, in view of the fact that our tent is collapsing, that is, that there is coming a day when this tent folds up, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I would love to see this as a refrigerator magnet on every one of our refrigerators. My ambition, be pleasing to him. My ambition, be pleasing to him. It's really like, like Paul is, he's not saying here's how you be saved. He's talking to people who have already believed the gospel. If you're one of those people who might be facing the great white throne, if you're today a person who hasn't ever trusted in Christ, you've never understood, I hope today that one of the things you'll understand is God is just and he's holy and he really will judge you. And I don't say that because I'm mad at you and I don't say it because you're worse than I am because you are certainly not worse than I am. I say it because the good news is God loved you enough to take your sins and mine when we were his enemies. And he offers to you eternal life if you'll believe. Not if you'll walk an aisle. There's nothing the matter with walking an aisle as long as you're not doing it to be saved. You can walk an aisle if it's to be able to say, I have believed the gospel that I'm a sinner deserving the judgment of God and I believe Christ died in my place and I receive that. There's nothing the matter with that. I hope that you'll have that opportunity if you have believed today to, to be able to make a public testimony like that, except let that be at your baptism because the scripture does command for people who have believed the gospel to be baptized. Again, that's not how you're saved. It's just how you declare it to the unseen world and the seen world. Jesus died for me. He offered me eternal life and I gladly proclaim it as I'm baptized as a symbol of that. That's what's available for the person who is not yet in Christ but believes. But here, what we're talking about is something different. For we must all appear, we Christians must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he has done, good or bad. Recompensed means to be paid back. Jesus is going to pay you back. He's going to pay you back if you're a Christian. He's going to pay you back. That doesn't mean that you're going to have to pay for your sins. That's not what it's about. He already took care of that. That we're not talking about we're not talking about somehow having to do something because I've sinned. That's what the church I was raised in, the Catholic Church taught when they talk about purgatory that any sins that hadn't been really taken care of, you need to burn them off for a few thousand years. Jesus took care of that. What this is talking about is however I lived See, every one of us has been given something different. You all had different parents than I did and vice versa. You all have different gifts than I and, and vice versa. See, God looks at every one of us as an individual and he says, given what you were given, what did you do it with? What did you do with it? 
Maybe you're super good with kids. Maybe you're a really patient person. Maybe you're a really steady person. Maybe you're, maybe you're a, I don't know, maybe you're great in hospitality. Maybe you're a good conversationalist. I don't know. Maybe you're good with numbers. There are a million things that God has made you for and backgrounds out of which we come. But what it is, is he looks at us and he says, given what you had, I'm going to recompense you. One talent, five talents, two talents, ten, whatever you got. I'm going to recompense you. I'm paying you back. So, for example, if you found that, like I did, that you were uh, uh, given, given to anger and rage, and you realize that it's not like God, and you let him work in you so that you humble your heart, you trust him and you appeal to him not only for forgiveness, but you go somewhere and try to learn how to work better with it, he's going to reward you for that. If you noticed you were stingy and greedy and focused on money all the time and you realize that is not, that's the beginning of all kinds of, of evil. And you came to the Lord at age 52 and you said, Lord, I've really lived for nothing more than my bottom line. I am so sorry. Would you help me live for something better? The Lord says, absolutely, and he'll reward you accordingly. But this is what it says. Whether it was good or whether it was bad, he'll recompense you. It'll either be reward or it'll be loss. And as we finish, let's finish with the last verse there, the, the final ver the verse that follows that, because I think sometimes if we're not sure if this is really true, these things we've just read in 2 Corinthians 5, is it really true we're going to be judged? Because that stimulates a little bit of fear in me. If you're anything like me, I read this, it stimulates a little bit of fear. Not the fear of me getting beaten up because somebody else already was. Not the fear of me having to answer for all my sins because somebody already has. But I feel a different kind of fear, Lord. Is my life comporting itself with what you intended? Well, verse 11 tells us that's an appropriate response. Look at what he says. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are manifest to God, and I hope we're also manifest in your consciences. In other words, Paul is saying, when I look at the judgment seat of Christ, it stimulates a bit of fear in me. And that's okay. Don't let it be a fear that causes you to run away. Because that's not a real fear. Real fear is, he's so amazing, I've got to deal with him, I better find out how to do it. Well, then we find his grace. And his grace says, Lord, I can always approach you. I don't have to run away because of your grace. My hope, my hope is, is that if we don't know Jesus, we'll believe the gospel today. If we do know Jesus, we'll let the judgments of God be a motivating factor for us. Not the sole motivating factor, but a very real motivating factor. God... Help me to live in such a way as is pleasing with you. Help me, Lord, to not hold on to my old stubbornnesses. Help me, Lord, to let you do the sanctifying work in me you always intended. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the judgments. Thank you that they're not given to us because you're ticked off. They're given to us. They're announced to us so that we can turn. I thank you, God, that you're a God who... Um, loves it when we turn. 
you love it when we recognize truth and when we bow before you and when we ask you to do a work. We just pray you would do that in us. We thank you for your grace. Thank you, Father, that for anybody here who's in Christ, we know it was not anything we've done. And we know we have no right to hold judgment and resentment over anyone else because we're recipients of a gospel. We pray, Father, you'd help us to walk in that light, abiding in you, abiding in you, so that we might live a life pleasing before you and one day get to hear before Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.